I want you to go through the whole Quran with me. Join me at bayina.tv. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم ورسولا إلى بني إسرائيل أني قد جئتكم بآية من ربكم أني أخلق لكم من الطين كهيئة الطير فأنفخ فيه فيكون طيرا بإذن الله وأبرئ الأكمه والأبرص وأحيي الموتى بإذن الله وأنبئكم بما تأكلون وما تدخرون في بيوتكم إن في ذلك لآية لكم إن كنتم مؤمنين ومصدقا لما بين يدي من التوراة ولأحل لكم بعض الذي حرم عليكم وجئتكم بآية من ربكم فاتقوا الله وأطيعون إن الله ربي وربكم فاعبدوه هذا صراط مستقيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي فالحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته we spoke uh, about the miracles given to Isa alayhi salam and how he declared them. We spoke about the shape, the, the, you know, the shape of a bird that was blown into, uh, and then the healing of the blind and the leper, meaning the terminally ill of skin, skin disease. And I talked to you about the parallels that that perhaps has to Israelite history, uh, and how each of them is tied to some incredible miracle or some major historical event in uh, in Jewish history, in the history of the, the, the Israelites. Uh, what we didn't get to talk about in some more detail is what And I'm going to inform you of what you're going to eat and what you have stored inside of your homes. Now, the, the word dakhar, tadakhirun, is actually dakhar with a tha. Tadakhirun becomes tadakhirun. This is a principle in, in, in sarf where you fuse letters together that are similar in pronunciation. So you find, for example, in the Quran, you know, وَلَقَدْ يَسَّلْنَا الْقُرْآنَ لِلذِّكْرِ فَهَلْ مِنْ مُدَّكِرِ مُدَّكِرِ, the root letters are actually ذَال كَافِ ذِكْرِ But because it's مُدَّكِرِ, the ذَال and the ta are so similar, they, they get fused together. This is something we learned when we, we study sarf, the morphology of words in Arabic, that these are some irregular examples of that. Anyway, so the root letters are not dal. I mean, if you're looking it up, you wouldn't look up dal kha and ra. You'd look up dal kha and ra. Okay. So is al madhkhar is the original word, and actually means the madhkhar. The original word means intestines, lower stomach, and it, you know it, it's used for something that is kept deep inside, hidden away, and something that is there to nourish or replenish, meaning food that gets consumed. Uh, and so the idea behind it, which is why the word the, the word dakhir from the same origin was used for someone who's well fed or fat. That's what they, they use the word dakhir for. From it, you get the word taddakhirun, which translates, I will tell you of what you're eating or what you're going to eat and what you are going to store in your in your homes. Meaning what you have buried deep inside your homes for your consumption, for your consumption and your consumption alone. You know, if, if the root meanings went back to something that is stored inside of a house, or it's stored inside of some container or whatever. Its use is for others as well. 
But the idea of ifdikhar related to the belly is that it's something you know, stored for one's own personal gain and personal gain alone. It's their own consumption exclusively. This perhaps is, um, you know, there's ways to look at this. I mean, one obvious way to look at it is this is one of the miracles, move on. There's nothing more to it. The issue with that I see is that when he described all of this, he said, In all of that, there's an ayah for you. And when Allah says anywhere else in the Quran, there's an ayah for you. What does that mean? This is going to give you some direction, some guidance, some, something to reflect on, something to contemplate, not just a proof. Not just a proof that I'm a prophet. Actually, even one of these is enough as a proof of him being a prophet, alayhi salam. But Isa alayhi salam is doing all of these different things, and at the end of that says, Inna fi dhalika la ayah. Meaning, this is something for you to contemplate. This is something for you to really think about. And so, that statement at the end is not necessarily calling on all of the miracles of Isa alayhi salam, you know, inviting some form of reflection. So that in nafidalika la ayat alakum kind of informs our way of looking at these miracles. So uh, these are again my own thoughts on, on some of what uh, these miracles might represent. You know, the, if, if you went to a corrupt leader among the Israelites and you told them, I know what you've been eating and what you've been storing. I know what you've been eating and what you've been storing. Well, you know, they would read that a little differently, right? Because their corruption was using manipulation of religion. They were actually consuming people's wealth. They were taking advantage of religion and were, you know, profiteering off of it. Uh, they were changing the law of Allah and consuming haram by, you know, by manipulation. Riba was made halal by them. The other things they did, these are play, game, game playing with the law to take advantage and to make money. And then to do so, you know, the, the religious leadership had to show that they are humble and pious and beat down and downtrodden. and They don't look like, you know, bling. They don't look like they're wealthier than everybody else. And yet what they have hidden away, stored away, is massive, massive, massive amounts of wealth. I won't mention which religion. I met a fellow in, in Belgium, um, really interesting Muslim brother. He used, to be, he used to be in gangs and spent a lot of time in jail and raised an orphan. And then he made tawbah and came back to Islam. And like he helps kids get out of gangs and all kinds of He's seen all kinds of things. And he described to me how religious centers all across the, the city, right? And I won't again name the religion, but you know, the, 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 the sellers are all warehouses where stolen jewelry and all this kind of stuff is stored. <laughs> right? And he goes, I know exactly which one has which. <laughs> Because I used to go, the, I used to be the pickup guy and the drop-off guy at different locations. I was like, whoa, that is intense. That was some fun dinner conversation. But in any case, when you're, tell, when you're talking about people that come, you know, on the outside have a religious facade, but actually are really corrupt, and they're, they're eating all kinds of haram, and they're storing it away. You know, this was, and they store so much, they couldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to spend it in a lifetime. They store and they store and they store. And you know, it's different now because I just mentioned just met a fellow, a Christian fellow, who's really turned off by Christianity, and I said, "Why are you so, you know, why are you so, you know, disillusioned by your faith? What, what is it?" And I thought he was going to say, "You know, Jesus being the Son of God doesn't make sense to me." But no, it was none of that. You know what he said? He said, "Well, you know, my preacher in our church has two planes, two private planes. Why do you need two private planes? And where'd you get the money for it? We spend all this money to give to the church to help the poor, to do good causes, and you got two planes." You know, and then you're like showing off your Rolex. God's been good to me and you're showing me a Rolex. Like, why am I giving you money? 
You know, and that, that became, so, that, so with some denominations of Christianity, that actually became outright in the open. God's been good to me, and y'all donate a lot of money, so here it is. Here's your donation at work. You know, so, so they, they'll do that. But, you know, previously, what happened? You know, you have, for example, the Vatican. Just as an example, the Vatican, if you looked at the, the you know, the, the holy, you know, you know, faculty, of the Vatican. You wouldn't see that these are worldly people. You would, you would see that they're very spiritual people. They don't they have the same kind of clothes. They don't have an elaborate lifestyle, etc. But the kind of wealth that is stored in the Vatican is beyond measure. Right? It's beyond measure. So akal and idikhar together, what you consume and what you're actually storing. And there may even be a contradiction between the two. You look like you're eating almost nothing, but you're hiding entire treasures. You know, so there may be that, that disparity, and just to give off the impression that you're just like everybody else, you know, there's, there's, not, you know there, there's nothing that you're hiding away. So this was kind of an expose of the corrupt elements within the Israelites that Isa was calling out also. Interestingly, in Quran, Allah describes greed of the Israelites, the past greed of the Israelites by saying, They are the most greediest and most zealous of people in worldly life wishing that they could live a thousand years and clearly storing away wealth as though they're going to live a thousand, a thousand years. That this was one of their diseases. And so goes back to that too. Of course, eating is a, a theme in uh, the Old Testament, right, in, in Israelite history. Starting with Musa salam, of course, when they left Egypt, they asked about different kinds of food. So the consumption was a big deal. And then, of course, the slaughter and the sacrifice and what you can and cannot eat, the, prohibit, the prohibitionary diet and all of those things, that's all part of their tradition. So, has an undertone to what's really important in the Jewish faith and in, in Islam of that time, really. So that's another thing that I wanted to bring to our attention. The other, well, a couple more comments. I was sharing this with our study group and um, some more things came out and shout out to Brother Saqib for just having some brilliant insights. I shared some of these things, like, you know, the bird being a reference perhaps to Ibrahim salam, and the dead one coming back to life perhaps being Musa salam, and the sick being healed, perhaps the Israelites being struck with rijs and then being healed, right? Because, you know, in a sense, Isa is getting, getting all of the miracles that summarize the entire tradition history of the Israelites. And he's the last of them. It's almost as though he's reminding them of, the, of their entire history through his miracles. It's incredible. Right? But he said, you know, as you said this, some other things came in my head. And I said, you know, what's popped in your head? And he said, well, you know, especially that first miracle, a bird, which is made of clay, it specifically mentions clay, and then it comes to life and it flies off. So something that is assumed to be dead comes to life and goes into the sky. Could there possibly be a connection to Isa, alayhi salam, <laughs> you know? of something coming to life and then going raised, raised up into the heavens. The other interesting thing is it's actually a cycle of life if you contemplate it. Again, shout out to Saqib for this one. It's, it's very beautiful and I found it very compelling. The first of these miracles is clay being brought to life just like human beings are clay and we are brought to life. That's the first stage of our life, clay brought to life. And, and, and it's, we're brought to life by a ruh being blown into us. And the bird, what did he say about the bird? He blows into it, and so, and then it's, Allah brings it to life. And of course, the angel blows the ruh into the womb. But even though we know Allah is the one who brings life, right? So we're never confused that the angel gave life. It's Allah who delivers it. In the same way, Isa alayhi salam blows, blows into the soil, and it turns into a living bird. And so it's, it represents the beginning of life. Then we, you know, a baby can't really clearly see, 
and they can't, they're, they're in a state of weakness and weakness even in old age is like, you know, blindness and sickness and he's removing blindness and sickness just like for Allah, for us, Allah removes our weaknesses as we grow older and gain strength and reach maturity in our age. And so it represents actually coming out of weakness into strength, these, the, the healing that Isa did. And then beyond that, we're going to die. And then we're going to be brought back to life. And the next miracle is what? I'm going to bring the dead back to life by Allah's permission. And so it's actually now, you know, from birth, then gaining of strength and healing, and then death, and then resurrection again. And what's going to happen after resurrection? We are going to be informed of everything we had, all the blessings we had, and all the things that we did, all the you know, all the things that we we stored, literally that we stored. And so, what does he say? I'll tell you what you eat, you eat, and what you're going to store. So it's profound that it's actually walking through the entire cycle of life through these miracles, you know. <laughs> It's, and then at the and then if you look at that and then look at the end of this ayah in all of that there's a profound miracle for you profound sign for you as if all of this is one lesson how are you forgetting that you are heading back towards Allah you're going to be ending up meeting with your master you know so this sabil this path that is described in the miracles of Isa salam if one contemplates Place is really, really powerful in Kuntum Mu'mineen if, in fact, you are all believers. As, as if the Israelites are as, acting in a way that suggests that they don't really think about meeting with Allah. That's not really on the forefront of their mind. And they're, they're forgetting where they came from and where they're headed. And through these miracles, where they came from and where they're headed is being highlighted to them. So in Kuntum Mu'mineen, if, in fact, you are believers, actually suggests if, in fact, you're claiming that you're the ones that have faith, and how come this, this realization doesn't reflect itself in your behavior, in the way you carry yourselves? How can this be iman? And notice the words in kuntum mu'minin are actually an echo from Surah Al-Baqarah. قُلْ What a terrible thing your faith tells you to do if in fact you are believers. Immediately after, you'll find them the most obsessed with worldly life even more than those who commit shirk. So again, materialism there was in the context of Allah saying, if in fact you're believers, and Isa challenging their materialism again, and then saying, if in fact you're believers, this is enough of a sign for you, for you to make your way back. Now we get to the, the, the crux of our dars today, which is, There are some literary devices here that I can't help but pay attention to, because I think they're very, very powerful. Uh, the word musaddiqan, from a grammar point of view, again, you notice that it's mansub, musaddiqan, as opposed to musaddiqun. And it is similar to rasulan. So you notice that in the 49th ayah, we saw rasulan, and now in the 50th ayah, we're seeing wa musaddiqan. So it's picking up from rasulan wa musaddiqan. Except here, wa musaddiqan lima bayna yadayya min at-tawrat, I have come as a confirmation of what is right in front of me of the Torah. That's what Isa says. That's what Jesus says. I've come as a confirmation of what is right in front of me of the Torah. So the word musaddiqan is on the tongue of who? Isa alayhi salam. If you go back up to the 49th ayah, Rasulan is actually on the tongue of the angels who were talking to Maryam and said, and he, you know, uh, Allah is going to teach him kitab, hikmah, Torah, Injil, and send him as a messenger to Bani Israel. And so this was actually the words of the angels 
And now as if that one sentence is continued with the word of Isa salam, I want to maybe help you understand this through a film example. I can't think of a particular film, alhamdulillah. But uh, what I do want to tell you is, you know, sometimes you have a scene where someone says to someone, go tell him this, tell him I'm going to kill you. Right? And the, the camera is, the first part of that is, go tell him I'm going to. And immediately the scene switches and the guy he was telling is now already going to deliver the message. And the remainder of that sentence comes on the mouth of the one who's delivering it, kill you. Right? So the I'm going to came from the original source. And then the kill you part comes from the guy who delivered it and said it. And you as a viewer knows that that sentence means he said it to him and then he went back and said it to him, but that, that half sentence, half sentence thing was put together like that. You ever seen that? Like uh, half the dialogue came from the mouth of one and the rest of the half came from the mouth of another. It actually means they said exactly the same thing. They said exactly the same thing. So what that means here is وَرَسُولًا إِلَى بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ The angels many years ago were telling Mary a messenger to the Israelites. But perhaps Isa salam also got up and said, I am a messenger to Bani Israel, and so the Rasulun is from the mouth of the angel, and Ila Bani Israel is on the mouth of Isa alayhi salam, and Wa Musaddiqal Lima Bayna Yadayya is on the mouth of Isa alayhi salam. There's a switch, the cutscene, immediate cutscene into that to echo that the, the, the delivery of the news to Mary fulfilled and was actually lived by Isa alayhi salam. So it's a very powerful iltifat uh, or transition that I wanted to pay attention to. Now, what does it mean to do tasdeeq? We've talked about this in Baqarah, but a quick recap of what's relevant here in this discussion. The Torah has many interpretations. The Torah, you know, literally for any one rule, there are so many thousands of views, and so many hundreds of views, you could practically look at it any, in any way. Tasdeeq means I'm going to interpret it the way it needs to be interpreted, the true interpretation of the text. And it's got interjections, meaning people have in, in inserted their opinion. And you know how in Quran, you have Quran and you have tafsir, right? And you'll never confuse Quran with tafsir. The ayah is the ayah. And the words of Qurtubi or Tabari or, you know, Jalalain or Ibn Kathir or whoever else are separate. But in the Torah, the commentary on the Torah was like this. So you can't tell where the ayah ends and the interpretation begins. It's all written as one. So... You couldn't tell which part is the word of Allah and which part is the interjection of the scholar or the one who's interpreting, etc., etc. This happened quite a bit with Torah. One of the jobs of Isa salam is to actually do tasdeeq to verify what actually is Torah. What actually is Torah, what was added later on, may have been somebody's opinion and then became part of, okay, that's Torah too. And it all just started getting, you know, getting into one you know how now, uh, if, if uh, imagine a, a translation of the Quran or a commentary on the Quran where after every word there's a parenthesis, here's what this word means. And then the next word, parenthesis, here's what this word means. But then imagine an ancient manuscript where the parentheses are gone. Wouldn't that become a problem? Like that would be seriously, where does the text end and what's the comment and what's the word of Allah? That's actually what happens. So my job is to restore the original Torah and to confirm what I have. Now, now you'll appreciate the next words. You know, I myself am a confirmation of Torah. It's not Injil is a confirmation of Torah. You know, Quran is a confirmation of Torah and Injil. Injil is a confirmation of Torah. But he's not saying the, my revelation is a confirmation of previous revelation. He's saying I myself am a confirmation of previous revelation. That's a big difference. That's actually not just saying what I'm teaching you, 
but the way I'm living, I'm living the Torah. I'm actually a living embodiment of the Torah, is what he's saying. What I'm doing, how I'm living, is actually what the Torah is supposed to look like. So, and in that sense, he's saying, I have been sent as a confirmer of Torah. I am the living Sidq, Tasdiq of the Torah. It's similar to how the Prophet was described, right? The Quran walking around. So it's essentially, it's Jesus is, Isa is Torah walking around. Okay? Of course, it also suggests, because he's been given Injil in addition, well, actually, I'll, I'll hold on on that point, because that's coming later on in the phrasing. The other piece here that's important is, Lima bayna yadayya. I'm confirming, not just musaddiqan lit-Tawrat, I'm here to confirm Torah, or I'm a confirmation of the Torah. No, no, no. I am here to confirm what is right between both of my hands of the Torah. Between both my hands is an Arabic phrase for what is right in front of you, that you have full access to. What is right in, like something is way back there, I don't have immediate access to it. Something, this book is right literally between my hands, it's right in front of me, I have full access to it. You know, parts of Torah were hidden, parts of Torah were, were uh, omitted, parts of Torah were kept secret, etc, etc. Uh, uh, Isa is saying, actually I have full access to the entire Torah. There's nothing that's hidden of the Torah from me, because it's right between my hands. Where did he get it from? Well, يُعَلِّمُهُ الْكِتَابُ وَالْحِكْمَةُ وَالتَّوْرَاتِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ Allah has given him full access to the Torah. Allah has taught him Torah again, all over himself. Which means nothing of the Torah is hidden from him. Okay, so when he's confirming it and he's embodying it, it's like, well, oh yeah, you're a living example of Torah? Where did you learn Torah? How do you have Torah anyway? And he says, it's right in front of me. It's right in front of me. You know how in Quran Allah says, Go bring Torah, read it. We saw examples of the Prophet asking them to read parts of Torah. And now it's actually Isa challenging them, bring the book. Because I am a living example of the book. I live the book and I have the book in me. I'm an embodiment of the book and the book resides inside of me. Allah has given it to me. That's what's captured inside the phrase, Lima Baina Yadayya. Then the Minat Torah is, of course, it's, it's Bayaniya, meaning i.e. the Torah. It Min is not from, it's i.e. the Torah, but it also means it's not all I have. I'm confirming Torah, and I'm, what I'm talking to you about is because they're like, well, he seems to have some new revelation. Of course, what new revelation has been, he been given? Injil. So like, we don't accept Injil, we only accept Torah. And his response is actually, I'm here to tell you what Torah is, in fact is. And the only role of Injil is to confirm what Torah actually says. Injil doesn't have new laws. Injil doesn't have a new fatwa on something. Injil doesn't make anything of the Torah mansukh as a matter of, or invalidated, or abrogated, or no longer applicable. As a matter of fact, I am here to embody all of the teachings of the Torah. And so, the, because their argument was, if he's claiming new revelation, then he's defying the Torah. He says, no, actually I came to validate and confirm the authentic Torah. That's my primary role. And now, given that, he makes an additional statement, a very powerful statement, and it's almost counterintuitive. <laughs> this demands a lot of reflection. And I came so that I may make permissible for you some of the things that have been made prohibited on you. I, may, I came to make permissible for you some of the things that have been made prohibited. Now, the first thing I want you to note here is, he did not say, I came to make permissible 
what Allah previously forbade. Allah is not mentioned in the equation. What has been mentioned is what was made prohibited. What was made prohibited. That's the passive form. Okay? And the making of halal is actually active, meaning I have come to make permissible. I have come to unleash. Literally, hulul means, halul uqda means to untie a knot. I have come to untie or unleash some of the things that have been bound on you, meaning some of the things that have been made per impermissible over you. The question then arises when somebody says, hey, this has been made unlawful, or this was made illegal. The question arises, who made it illegal? Of course, when you think of something made illegal, you think the authorities made it illegal, the government made it illegal, the court made it illegal, the constitution made it illegal. You think of a higher authority that makes things legal and make things, makes things illegal. In the case of Jewish tradition, in, 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 the, in the Israelite tradition, it wasn't just Allah that makes halal and haram. Who started making things halal and haram? The ulama did. They started adding to a list of things that are haram. So, and and the, as time passed by, the you know the the their fiqh books, their jurisprudence books had this is impermissible, this is impermissible, this is impermissible, this is impermissible, and you don't even know where it came from. You don't, why why are we not allowed to do that? Where did that come from? They have the, the ulama have said, where did they, where did they get it from? Don't ask those questions. They just said it. Just follow it. It's, it says, it's right there, it says the fatwa, it's impermissible. What do you mean? In other words, prohibitions, are very, they were very, very adamant about prohibitions, yet they couldn't tell where they came from. They, if, you, if they asked, if really probed, they couldn't be, because it's majhul. Hurrima alaykum. Not haram Allah. Can you actually say, literally, Allah made this haram? No, 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 no. But um, it's haram still. Why? Because our sheikh said, well, why did your shaykh say it? Oh, who are you to question our shaykh? So the, the list of haram got very, very big. But you would think, if they're corrupt, if they are in fact corrupt, then they shouldn't be making more things haram, they should be making more things halal. That's what I mean by counterintuitive, right? Like Isa alayhi should come back and say, no, 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 you guys have made too many things halal on yourselves. You need to go back and become more restricted on you know, uh, go back to being conservative again. You guys got too liberal. You know, but it seems the opposite. You guys got more conservative than Allah wants you to be. And I've come back to loosen things up for you. To make things, because to make things halal is make things easier, right? And to make things haram is to make things harder. And it seems that their problem is they want to be more conservative, more obedient, more restricted in life. Why? It seems everything else that they want to do is so against Allah's will, but making more things haram. By the way, you think of it this way. You, nowadays, if you find somebody who's very strict in their Islam, people that we think are very strict in their Islam usually means they have, most things are haram for them. Right? They're, they're really big on like, like almost if, if in doubt, it's haram. You know? And they're very limited in the way they can behave and move around. And the more strict they are in that way, the more, the more haram they impose on themselves, you would think, the more religious they are. And that seems to be the case here. That they've imposed so much on them that clearly must, they must be religious people. They must be closer to God because they have so much impositions on themselves. This is actually part of the facade that Isa came to break. This was a... This is a 
smokescreen. This is a disguise. Uh, and the way to describe this disguise is, you know, there's an, it's an old Urdu phrase. I don't even remember the Urdu of it, but the, the meaning of it is ridiculous. But So I'll share the meaning of it with you. You know, the hunter is obsessed with, with you know, killing the mosquito while the elephant quietly escaped. The point is, if you get what I'm trying to get at, is you are so nitpicking about the minutest details and coming, splitting a fatwa into a fatwa into a fatwa into a fatwa about what is halal and haram. And while at the same time, some of the biggest disobediences to Allah slip right by. No problem. <laughs> right? And so you have, well, is it, Halal for you to wear a colorful ihram, or is it, you know, how much hair do you have to cut, or what do you have to do? You know, I cut my nails, but when I was cutting, I bled a little. Does that mean I have to slaughter a goat? Or, you know, like, you come up with, like, give me a fatwa for just the most technical details of the law, and yet your wife was not given her mahar. And your daughter was not given her share of the inheritance. And that's, that's okay. And, oh no, 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 your, your hair is showing. Your hair is showing. The, the hijab is to cover your hair. Astaghfirullah al-Azim. And, and that's okay. But riba all day. All day. Backbiting. Just destroying somebody's dignity. But the hijab is perfect. You know, so what happens then? They look religious. And they make a lot of things haram. And they're very strict about those people. I mean, those Man, some, some people, subhanAllah, they come to these conventions and they dress like this and they talk like this. And how are you even praying? Your hands were over here. Your hands are supposed to be here. Dude, if you're praying next to me and you're thinking about my hands, then there's a bigger problem than my hands. <laughs> that actually literally happened to me. I was at a masjid one time. And, you know, after we said salam, the guy next to me says, your salah didn't count. I was like, oh, why didn't it count? He said, well, your, your elbows were out. Your elbows are supposed to be in. I was like, oh, well, thank you. And <laughs> I was like, you? How do you have, you're like, I mean, the guy is taller than I am. So he's really looking down on the elbows to, <laughs> to, this is what Isa came to call out. You've made a bunch of things haram that are not the most important thing and you pick on them and pick on them and pick on them. And as a result of that, some of the greatest evils that the religion came to prevent, you don't even notice. They just, they just happen and no big deal. Financial crimes, no big deal. Corruption, no big deal. Backbiting, slander, no big deal. <laughs> and this is a, sounds like an ancient disease that we have no exposure to right this is an Israelite problem why would we have this issue what is Allah, what is what is Isa saying Isa saying if you go back to the original book of Allah if you go back to Torah the original that I'm confirming with the way that I live then you will find that a, the huge list of hurumat that you made is not a huge list of all at all the huge list of prohibitions that you made is mostly puff. It's nothing. Let me tell you a story from the Bible. It's going to be hard to understand because it's, you know, the Bible's language sometimes is ambiguous, but I'll explain at the end. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain field on the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is a day when the Jews are not supposed to do much. Yes? Okay. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of the grain and eat them. So the disciples of Jesus are going through a field and they're just picking off the top and just eating some grains because they're starving. When the Pharisees, which means the religious leaders, saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known that these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees seem to have been overcautious. This is comments now. The Pharisees seem to be, have been overcautious in applying the commandment from Exodus, meaning the, the observing of the Sabbath, right? The Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even in plowing and harvesting seasons, you must rest. Meaning there's not going to be any work. You're not going to plow the fields, etc. The disciples weren't plowing. What were the disciples of Jesus doing? Were they harvesting? They were just eating. That's all they did. They, weren't just, they were just picking a few grains for themselves, so they weren't breaking the Exodus command. But the Pharisees, being uber-cautious, had decreed that even that should be prohibited. And so, Jesus doesn't challenge their interpretation directly, rather he quotes the scripture back at them to show that you can go against what is deemed lawful for the sake of mercy. Far more effective. You know, if someone has had intimacy with their spouse, then they can't just make wudu, they have to take a shower. There was a soldier among, in the Muslim army in the time of the Prophet who had a, a, a wet dream. Okay, So he was aroused and he you know, had a wet dream, which requires that if he's going to pray again, he has to shower. But he was also injured in battle, so he had a head injury. So there were some among the companions who said, You're, you can't just make wudu, you have to have wudu. Come on, man. And so he went and forced himself to shower, and as a result, he died. And the Prophet was extremely upset. What have you done? What in the world have you done? The rule says you have to shower. But there are mercy overrides the rule. There are exceptions. Even Allah, how, how badly does Allah condemn, you know, uh, the, the, the dead animal, carcass, blood, pork? He prohibits these things. But if someone is forced, not because they're being rebellious, not because they just want to cross a line, but because they're dying of starvation, and they had some pork chops because that's all that was left, then there's no sin on them. Absolutely not. There's no sin whatsoever on them. The law of Allah is there, but that's for normal circumstances, and there were even exceptions made by Rasulullah Think about the woman who committed adultery, came to the Prophet and said, Ya Rasulullah, I committed adultery. Punish me. He says, go away. I don't want to hear you, go away. He, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, received the law of Allah. He received the law of Allah. No one will implement the law of Allah better than the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. In our times, in some super conservative village, if some girl says, I committed adultery, ya Shaykh, before she gets to the word adultery, where she says, I committed, the stoning begins. She comes to the Rasul and says, I did this. 
punish me. He says, go away. She came back. I found out I'm pregnant. Please punish me. He says, go away. Don't talk to me until you have a baby. She has a baby. Comes back with the baby. Punish me. He says, no, not until you feed the baby for two years. Go. Go away. Don't come to me. She comes back with bread in the baby's mouth to show the Prophet that she doesn't need to feed him anymore. Can you punish me now? The Prophet ﷺ is trying to push her away, push her away, push her away. Why? And he says, Rahmata lil alameen. He's Rahmata lil alameen. And she, there are some people who, are, who think the only way Allah will be happy is when they're punished. They're more conservative than Islam. You're more religious than your Prophet. <laughs> That's not Islam. Some things Allah made halal, and He did that for a reason. And that's something that is in the essence of the book. It's in the core, in the heart of the book, there's mercy. There's room. And that's what prophets embodied. You know, even the Prophet's instruction was, don't seek to execute the punishments of Allah. Don't do that. Don't seek out, when can I implement the whipping? When can I implement the stoning? When can I implement the cutting of a hand? When can I... Umar bin al-Khattab in his time he suspended cutting the hand why? it's a law of Allah and it's not even some early law of Islam it's in Surah Al-Ma'idah one of the last revelations how are you just gonna just suspend the law? yeah, yeah, suspend the law there's a reason to do that you know but there's another dimension to this. Not just the law of Allah where actually things are halal and haram and how we're supposed to implement that. But there's another dimension. You see, something is haram. Maybe this, this one thing is haram. And what we do is ihtiyat. Ihtiyat means we're going to create a circle around it and say everything that's even within 10 miles of this is haram too. Okay. So, and we do this because we want to protect ourselves, right? So we say, no, I, I know this isn't haram, but everything around it, we're just going to create a gigantic circle and say all of it's haram. So, you know, to give you an example of that, um, adultery is haram, zina is haram. But zina doesn't happen overnight. Two people have a relationship, it goes out of hand, they don't get married, they do something wrong, etc. So you know what? We're going to prevent that from happening. Women should not drive <laughs> haram because if they drive then they might they might go to the mall and if they go to the mall they, the guy at the store might like them and they start to, and then dinner is going to happen so the better thing to do is to uh, not let them drive well, that's, a, that's a that's a smart fatwa because we're protecting i mean we're not saying driving is haram but we're saying if we let that happen then haram will happen so we're being extra cautious. Now what happens when you become more cautious than Allah and His Messenger? Because that's what that is. If something was actually dangerous, who would know it better than you and I would? Allah and His Messenger would. And they would have told us, this is bad for you. You can't do it. You with me? But we say, well, Allah told us this is red alert, code red. Let's start putting the barbed wire around code green. <laughs> and yellow, and orange, all of that. Don't even get into the yellow. When someone steps into the yellow, Astaghfirullah, You sat at a dinner table? And there were other people there? Astaghfirullah, 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 
I'm gonna go. Okay, I'm gonna go make Umrah for you, because I <laughs> this is the same Quran that says, "Laysa alaykum janahan, janahan anta jami'an aw ashtata." It's okay if you eat together, if you eat apart. Some people so conservative that if they're sitting at the same table and a guest came and there's women in the house or whatever and they're sitting at the same table and a guest came, a male came and they sat at the same table Astaghfirullah Do you have a curtain? I can sit on the other side of it and maybe you can electrocute that curtain for me too so I can be protected from the fitna and in case I was thinking about touching the curtain my hands would be reminded of the taqwa of Allah and so I could You know when you do that when you create more and more and more prohibitions in order to protect yourself the intention is, may, may even be good. You know what happens? Let me tell you what happens. What happens is, these prohibitions are unnatural. The prohibitions Allah actually gave us are natural. They correspond to our fitrah. Allah knows, man khalaq. Don't, doesn't, doesn't He know who He created? Allah knows who He made. So He makes us stay away from things that are actually filthy. Allah prohibited actual filthy things. But when we start taking things that aren't in and of themselves filthy, aren't in and of themselves evil, and we start prohibiting them too, unnecessarily, and I'm not saying caution isn't important. Caution is something else. Kitab is something else, hikmah is something else. That's actually the difference. And I'll, I'll get to that last. But right now, just listen to this part. If you start making illegal things that Allah did not make illegal, then what happens to people? One, they start one crime, they start equating what Allah prohibited with what people prohibited, and that is a major sin. Because only Allah owns the right to prohibit something. And to use the word haram for something other than what Allah used it for is actually trampling on the sacred. Tell them, who dare make haram? What Allah made beautiful, the beauty that He, uh, the ones that He pulled out for His believers, for His servants. This is for those who believe. Who's going to make that haram? Now, it's, there's a difference between saying something is haram and something is a bad idea. You with me? Not everything has to be, not every halal thing is a good idea. Okay? So if, you know, you're. Your you know, son wants to go out in the middle of the night. Midnight, your 18-year-old son says, I'm going out. Where are you going? Just going out. No, don't go. Oh, is it haram? I can't go? Is there, is there, is there an ayah of the Quran that says, 11.45, I shouldn't be going outside? No, no, there's no ayah, there's no hadith. That's not a problem of kitab. That's a problem of what? Hikmah. Hikmah wisdom. The problem becomes, in the minds of the people, then... Unless it is prohibited in the law, it's completely fine. And the only way you can stop people from doing something is tell them it's haram. That's a, it's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. This is what happens when kitab gets separated from hikmah. This is, this is what happens. And that, you know, in the young generation, then hikmah is completely gone. In the next generation. You know what they say? Hey, my mom says I can't do that. Shaykh, is it haram? Well, like, first of all, I'm not a sheikh. And second of all, so what if it's not haram? I just wanted to know if it's haram or not. Thanks. Because now that you know it's not haram, that means you're going to go do it. No, just because it's not haram doesn't mean it's not a stupid idea. 
doesn't mean you're not going into something that's unwise. This is why وَمَا أَنزَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ يَعِذُكُمْ بِهِ It's not just مِنَ الْكِتَابِ Whatever Allah sent down to you of the, of the law and of wisdom is there to counsel you. There's such a thing as living life by the law and also living life by wisdom. The problem with the Jewish community of the time of Isa was the only thing that mattered was you're living by the law. That's it. That's all that matters. Fatwa, fatwa, fatwa. That's all that, that my life amounts to. That's one extreme that happens. Another, you know, you know, when you do something unnatural, you know, like when you eat unnatural diet, then you get strange kinds of diseases. When you introduce unnatural things into the religion, strange kinds of diseases happen in the community, in people. Strange misguidances happen that weren't happening before. So what happens to another generation of, of people? They say, man, as soon as I came up of age, all I've been hearing is most things are haram. This religion just doesn't let me live a normal life. Everything is allowed, nothing is allowed. I just met a brother who took shahada maybe five, six months ago. He reached out to me on Facebook. We started talking, Hispanic fellow. And he tells me, man, I went to the masjid and I had a haircut and somebody told me my haircut's haram. <laughs> and they're like, this is against the sunnah of the Prophet and it's, I'm going to go to hellfire because I'm, I have this haircut. And I'm just thinking, all I did was do a haircut. I didn't know the Prophet was so angry at haircuts. And he's really genuinely confused. And I'm like, you're fine, bro. You're fine. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And then he comes to me another day. He was wearing a, hat, a baseball hat. Just a baseball hat. And he's like, this is haram. This is imitating the kuffar. It's haram. I don't even know where to begin with those. What, a turban is more Islamic to you? Is that, is that closer to Islam to you? Because Abu Jahl wore a turban. What, is a thobe more religious? Because the worst enemies of Islam, Walid ibn Mughira wore a thobe. Is that Islamic clothing? When the Sahaba went to Rome, they, went, they dressed in Roman clothing. Nobody said to them, you're dressed like the kuffar. <laughs> a baseball hat? This is what happens when you expand the scope of haram. You know what happens? People that were coming into this deen start walking away. This is the opposite of what the Prophet advised when he went and said, وسلم, to introduce people to Islam, yassira wa la tu'assira. Make ease, don't make difficulty. The list of what is haram is already clear. Innal halala bayin wal haram bayin. And what we do is we... we there's, there's men... Branches and branches and branches of haram. What? What religion is this? This was a disease of the Israelites that Isa came to fix. I can't begin to tell you how many young people have come and told me, I just can't follow Islam because everything is haram. And then I have a 20-minute conversation with them, and 19 out of the 20 things they list that are supposedly haram aren't. We're like, well, that's not what I learned. Why? But it's not in the book. It's not anywhere. You know? There are places in the Muslim world where a girl getting an education is haram. Where a woman getting work is haram. Going to an office is haram. What Quran are you reading? These daughters of uh, the man in Madian are going to herd their sheep and give them water among non-believers. And that's in the Quran. And these are noble women. So noble they made it into the Quran. And women aren't allowed to go to work. 
When you expand that, you know what happens? It becomes easy to leave Islam. The first step into Islam is supposed to be to make ease. Is to make ease. And then as, as believers mature, then they can take more and more responsibility on. But then again, I, I, I tell you, what used to be a matter of caution, we made it a matter of law. Caution and wisdom is something else. Law is something else. So he's saying, I came to unleash for you, to make permissible for you. Just because they're eating these grains in the field doesn't mean they violated the Sabbath. What is wrong with you? The purpose of the violation of the, the Sabbath is so you don't make material gain. Allah didn't prevent you from surviving. That's not what Allah revealed. What is wrong with you? That's not the book itself. How, and the, the key inside of this ayah, the key in the ayah that the Israelites were missing for, for generations upon generations, and that's a key for us, is that their connection with Torah had actually been lost. The original Torah, their connection was lost. They had a, they, they confused the connection of their scholars' opinions, 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 with their connection with Torah. This ummah, when it forgets, there's a difference between, and I'm a student of tafsir, and I'll say this without hesitation, when we forget that there's a difference between a connection with fiqh and tafsir and usul, and a connection with kitabullah, then we're going to have the same problem. Allah You don't find a change in the way Allah does things. When somebody thinks reading a tafsir of the Qur'an is the same as the contemplation of the Qur'an itself, and a connection with the Qur'an itself, when somebody thinks that the, 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 the fiqh, the rules of it have already been extracted, where the word of Allah is a, is a living you know, gift that gives life, that restores faith, that gives tazkiyah. A, a, a book of fiqh cannot do tazkiyah. A, a, a set of regulations cannot give you wisdom. Wisdom can only come from the words of Allah. Every human being is in need of the words of Allah, not just scholars. Scholars have done a profound effort extracting and extrapolating the law, and the law is valuable, and, it's, and, and the, the jurisprudence of it is valuable. But it has no meaning if the word of Allah is not, no longer a connection. It loses its meaning completely. Then it's empty rituals. Just empty, empty. It's a shell of what looks like Islam, but it's not Islam at all. Then Ramadan is just about iftars. It's just about being hungry during the day. It has no other meaning. It has no value. Then Hajj is just something you do and go take selfies near the Kaaba. Man, it's hot. I wonder what's on the buffet. Then you're not thinking Ibrahim alayhi salam. Then you're not thinking Ismail alayhi salam. You're not thinking. None of that stuff is in your head. The spirit of it is gone. وَلِيُحِلَّ لَكُمْ بَعْضَ الَّذِي حُرِّمَ عَلَيْكُمْ are very heavy words. And at the end of that he says, وَجِئْتُكُمْ بِآيَةٍ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ And there, there you have it. Ayah. A messenger is given ayat. Ayat are of two kinds. I mentioned this in the last session. There are two kinds of ayat. There's the, the purpose of ayah is to prove that he's a messenger. And it's a message. Notice in these words, up until now they were miracles. And at the end of it all, there's the message. And the, uh, the, the, the conversation began. And it's also closing. Two dimensions of the ayat and two references to the word ayah. Same phrase. And I've come to you with an ayah from your Rabb. A sign from your Rabb. Notice also in this passage that Isa makes two kinds of references to Allah. Rabb and Allah. 
He says in the beginning, "Anni qad jiktukum bi ayatin not min Allah, min Rabbikum." But then later on he says, "Anni akhluqu lakum min al-tini kahiyat al-tayri fa anfuqu fihi fa yakunu tayran bi idni Allah, not idni Rabbikum, but idni Allah." And then wa ubriu al-akmaha wa al-abrasa wa uhi al-mauta bi idni Allah. So Allah, Allah, Rabbikum, Rabbikum. Right? So two references to the word Allah, two references to the word Rabbikum, and it's perfectly symmetrical, but there's more going on here that I'd like, like you to know. When he refers to Allah as Allah, he's actually highlighting Allah's sole right to be worshipped and his tawheed. Meaning, I'm, looks like I'm giving life, but only Allah gives life. Don't, don't you know, um, attribute divinity to anyone else. When we're talking about the question of divinity, the word Allah will come up. When we're talking about the question of authority, who has ultimate authority over you? I'm telling you these things because my master has told me to tell you. And he's not just my master, he's your master too. I'm not doing this to impress you, I'm doing this as a slave. Because whenever you say Rabb, then what do I become? Abd. I become Abd. I have come to you from, with a sign from your master, meaning he's my master too. I came as a slave and you all, I came to remind you that you're slaves to him. Your loyalty and your obedience needs to be absolute to him. That's the word Rabb, in the beginning and at the end. As if to suggest that one, divinity should not be attributed to me. And two, and that's by the way the Christian problem. And authority should only go to Allah, which is the Jewish problem. So between Rabbikum and the word Allah, it's actually both nations addressed. Even though he's particularly addressing the, the Jewish community of the time, the followers of Musa salam, coming forward, the Christians are listening to this, right? They, there's the, the Christians of Najran that are listening to this, their divinity problems being solved. But with the words, bi'ithnillah, bi'ithnillah, subhanAllah. So that's the difference between Rabbikum and the word Allah in this passage, or one of the dimensions of it. And so as, as I conclude, فَاتَّقُوا wa atiun. Then be cautious of Allah. Be, be, protect yourselves from Allah. This is heavy. Because he just said, I made some things halal for you, which means things got easy. Just because some things became halal doesn't mean everything became halal. You know what happens? To an extreme reaction. And to an extreme action, there's an extreme reaction. So if you made everything haram, then you know what? I can't live like this, so I'm going to do what? Make everything halal. You know, we need to have a a more merciful interpretation of the law. Because I heard a lecture by Nawal Khan and he was saying that we make too many things haram. And what do you and, and what do you construe that to mean? Let's make too many things what? Halal. No, that's also a violation of Allah's taqwa. Hold on, buddy. So before the ayah ends, Fattakullah. Hold on a sec. Be cautious of Allah. Follow me. Obey me. Meaning do as I do. Christians, listen to this. Do as I do. He never drank. He never ate pork. How do you do that? Because he's, he's not just saying, love me. Believe in me and you're saved. Follow me. Be cautious of Allah and obey me is the most consistent demand of all prophets. Be mindful of Allah and obey me. Be mindful of Allah and obey me. And obeying the Prophet ﷺ is to figure out how did they judge situations? How did they behave in different circumstances? It's not just a particular behavior. It's actually their mindset. Studying the seerah is really important for this purpose. Understanding how the Prophet ﷺ handled different circumstances. 
You know, the more you study about a person, the more you're trying to get inside their head. You're trying to understand how do they process things? How do they think? How do they analyze situations? How do they judge situations? And the more we do that, the more we're in a position to obey Him. And ita'a comes from the word tawa, which actually means to volunteer. Ati'un, voluntarily follow me. Don't follow me because it's some kind of an obligation on you and you're doing it, but actually, I need you to give in and be volunteer, volunteer yourselves wanting to do this. So that's fattakullaha wa ati'un. Um, we'll have a discussion inshallah ta'ala in our next session on inna allaha rabbi wa rabbukum fa'buduhu hadha siratul mustaqim. That's also a long conversation. We'll, I'll, I'll stop it at this point. We'll make salah and inshallah ta'ala I'll repeat yesterday's session for those of you that missed it because uh, there was some recording issues yesterday. So, barakallahu li wa lakum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.